You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Hans Charles. Hans is a cinematographer, filmmaker, and associate professor in the Film and Video Studies Department of George Mason University. He has shot for a range of directors, including Spike Lee, Ava DuVernay, and Salim Akhil. His films have won a BAFTA and have been nominated for an Oscar and Independent Spirit Award. Hans's projects have screened at festivals all over the world, including the New York Film Festival, the Urban World Film Festival, and HBO, ESPN, Netflix, and Hulu. But before he began making his mark in the film industry, Hans spent his formative years in Stamford, Connecticut, as the son of Haitian immigrants. In part one of this interview, he breaks down what it was like growing up with parents who went to great lengths to insulate him and his siblings from American pop culture. Like most immigrants, however, they did value the educational opportunities that the U.S. provides. Now, while Hans knew he was naturally gifted in such areas as writing and music, by his own admission, he lacked discipline. But he did well enough to gain admission into Morehouse University and left Connecticut for the AUC. Hans landed in Atlanta in an era that he calls magical, and his time there was informative in more ways than one. So here's the first half of his story. Please enjoy. Hans, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Uh, As we mentioned before we press record, you came highly recommended by a friend to the show. Shout out to Brandon, uh, who's always recommending great people for us and, and, and never steers us wrong. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, I appreciate my man, Brandon. We've known each other for a really long time. And uh, yeah, shout out to Brandon. All right. So let's get into it. Your Weaver Bay. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Hans Charles? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know. Um, I mean, obviously, I know who I am. Um, I was born and raised in Connecticut. In an interesting time, you know. I, I feel like I'm one of those people who grew up um, with a keener understanding of what it meant to grow up in the crack epidemic and what the crack epidemic sort of means. I feel like that's a defining sort of era in my life. I feel like that's a that's the lens by which I see progress. That's the lens by which I see almost everything in the world is um, sort of the trauma of, of growing up in the post-crack crack epidemic era. I was born in 76. Um, and so by the time I'm coming of age, uh, I would say, and probably statistically, this is probably the truth, the the height of the epidemic in terms of usage is probably on the downslope, but but we are the rise of sort of governmental entities' reaction to the epidemic was sort of at its height, and and I feel like that colored a lot of what I experienced today. I mean, the first time I remember an incident of police brutality, I'll never forget this. I think I was six or seven years old, and um, a woman that my mother, my mother was a, she worked in a factory by day, but she was a part-time nurse's aide. So she provided in-home care to some older folks or sometimes people with special needs. And so um, this, one of her patients, the the daughter of one of her patients, her son um, had a mental health crisis and the police were called and the police shot him. 
mm-hmm. uh, in the middle of the street. And I remember for years, we didn't drive down that street. We, d- we would never drive on that end of the street. And then to this day, I kind of considered that street sort of cursed. One of my childhood friends died on his motorcycle on that street as well. So I remember that sort of memory vividly. And in contextually, when I think about what I studied in terms of sociology in college, it, it makes sense that the crack epidemic sort of defined like the way I see the world, even as a filmmaker and, and the way I input information and the way I process it. So I think it'd be interesting. It's such a weird label to define yourself like a, a child of the epidemic, but I think it would make sense. It would not make sense for me not to, to feel like that's a defining point. Um, that's interesting contextually then to understand that I'm also the children of immigrants, first generation or first generation immigrant. So, but I feel like the crack epidemic defined that experience. My parents did not have a context for what they were stepping into when they arrived in this country. And they didn't have a historical sort of background or understanding of race relations in America historically to then contextualize what they were seeing. So they were reacting to what they were seeing on the ground. And that's why I said the crack epidemic really colored my experience because had they maybe arrived in this country a few years earlier and then saw the change or had an opportunity to gain a historical context, then it would have changed the way they reacted to what was happening around them. So, you know, I I think many people who have ties to New York but don't really know Connecticut see Connecticut as this idyllic place that people commute, professionals commute to the city from. Um, and they're they're not as aware that working class communities exist or that such a, an epidemic could actually be affecting those communities, right? So, and, and and admittedly, it wasn't until like I went to Connecticut in my 20s that I realized that it's not everything doesn't look like Greenwich, right? Um mm-hmm. so so what what did that lens look like for your parents and then for you? What was your family actually witnessing from your vantage point? Well, um you know, my parents came in 74 and 75 and they landed, they ended up in New York where a lot of my parents are from Haiti, where a lot of Haitians, a lot of people from the Caribbean coming to the East Coast would sort of gravitate. You'd gravitate to either Boston, you'd gravitate to New York, or you'd gravitate to um, Florida. Um, so it's really, you're coming up through Florida and depending on how you came, if you come by plane, then it's easier to get farther and farther away. If you're coming in by boat or by other means, then you sort of kind of get stuck in a place like Florida. And I want to use, I use the word stuck in quotation marks. Um, so yeah, they, they came to New York. My mother had a cousin uh, and I think my father's cousins as well. One was in Jersey. My mother's cousins were in New York. Um, her cousins were a little bit older, just a few years older. My aunt Sonia's 85 or 86. So my aunt Sonia had been in New York for a while and, you know, sort of a prototypical sort of New York immigrant story. She comes to New York, really starts to understand the culture, adapts, you know, a certain level of assimilation. Um, And, but that was a different experience for my mother. I think my mother, one, because my mother came to New York a lot later in life. So she came in her mid thirties and then, um, but yeah, so you're talking about New York in 75. That's the that's like that's a, almost a demarcation point for some people. Some people talk about moving in to the New York housing projects in the late 60s, early 70s, and how they were in an idyllic place. And by you're talking about by 74, 75, those spaces almost 
overnight it felt became hell holes. So mm -hmm. um, people talk about how just nice the projects work. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm a cinematographer by trade. I shot the Wu-Tang Clan docu-series of Mikes and Men. And I remember in sitting the interviews with the gentleman um, and in particular Ghostface talking about growing up in, um, I think Ghost is from Stapleton, Stapleton Projects. And just, just talk about like the history of the Stapleton projects, how, like how they started and then how they, they sort of turned. Those guys are a little bit older than me. So it's interesting that, that this is a universal story around the country. So that's, what's, that's the thing. And in college, uh, Professor Crawford, no, it wasn't Crawford. It was um, Crawford was the department head of the sociology department. I can't remember the, the professor. Foster, Dr. Foster. Dr. Foster at Morehouse College told us that the ghetto was a geopolitical space. Mm. And at the time he said that, I just, I didn't understand what he was saying. I didn't, I didn't get it. And then gentrification or so-called gentrification helped me to understand what he meant by that. Because gentrification is like, you're watching a place not really physically change, but people's perception of the space change. Um, and there's nothing about it. The houses are the same, the grass is the same, the trees are the same, the streets are the same. But then people perceive it as a brighter, better place all of a sudden, right? And so these pockets of issues wherever black people were that's why to me the crack epidemic is such a era defining epidemic because what it did is it criminalized black spaces mm. so wherever black people were congregated was the was the bad part of town my wife is from a small town in new jersey westwood new jersey and the strip where black people were was considered like the bad part of town and you like there is nothing at, even at the height of the crack epidemic that would make that place a dangerous place. It's just impossible. It just, it did not have the elements. The only elements it had was that a black, a bunch of black people lived on that block. And you're talking about like a three block radius. There's like, it was never the ghetto in my wife's hometown. It was never, it was never the ghetto. It was never run down. It was never winos on the street. The houses are exactly the same when she grew up. And yet the perception of all the non-white people in this town was that that's the ghetto part of town. Like, don't go to that part of town. That's the ghetto, right? And that is only because you're associating crack and criminality with the gathering of Black folks. Mm -hmm. That's why across the country. So when, when Dr. Foster said the, the ghetto is a geopolitical space, it then is a political designation. It's a marker that feels like capitalism and Western culture needs, in particular in the Americas, it needs to have, these are the good places that we like, and then these are the bad places that we don't like. And it seems that Western culture can't have Black people in a space and not define that space as bad. And that when that, when that doesn't happen, it's hard for them to deal with that. So. I feel like my parents came into a space, um, you know, there was a, there was a language barrier, there was a cultural barrier and, you know, you had a transition out of the, there in the seventies. Yeah. You're talking about out of Carter into Reagan. So, you know, Carter is a very, the Carter administration is a very chaotic year, um, years administration economically for the country. And so the, the country's going through an economic transition and you have these immigrants kind of show up to the space. And um, one of the ways that black people have dealt with trauma in their communities is to participate 
in drugs. It's like taking drugs to relief because the medical system is not going to provide any kind of relief, right? And religion only goes so far. And then you have this new explosive drug that's taking over these black spaces that we now understand was actually planted and pushed in. You know, even though people said it for years, nobody believed those people until the FBI files came out. So that's right. the era that my parents came into. And of course, because of their race, they're regulated to living in certain spaces. And so they see crime, they see drugs, and they see something they've never seen in their country. They never experienced drug use in their country. Um, they've only experienced alcoholism tangentially. Like you would easily get away from alcoholics. And, and you know, alcoholism is a big, big shame in Haiti. So it's not like you're allowed to just be an alcoholic. And so people, you know, the, the country is a pretty conservative country. So it's people kind of stay away from people who indulge and hang out in bars and drink and you're considered those kinds of people. And those kind of people have their own, you know, they have their own space and community, but my parents weren't a part of that. So seeing, seeing crime of any kind, honestly, um, seeing this thing called drugs that they didn't even have a context for what drugs are, right? I mean, Haiti is not a marijuana culture. It's not like marijuana wasn't prevalent in Haiti. I would say if anything, Haitians probably indulge through the use of through the practice of voodoo and use of voodoo in psychedelic drugs more than anything than like recreational stuff that we would take here. So it's a complete, like there's just no context for my parents to come to this country and see what they were seeing. And so they operated out of a space of fear and, you know, they had four kids and they were like, how are we going to raise our children? And recently my father was telling me that he considered sending us all back to Haiti. Mm because he was afraid that we, he didn't think that we would make it in America. So he considered sending us all back and they would just send money and just kind of create a, life, a nice life and then bring us here when we were in our 18 to go to college. So we had the, we had the possibility of a completely different sort of trajectory. But keeping you all here and making that, that, that choice to remain, how do you think that fear and their feelings about the community, how do you think that affected how they reared you as children? Oh, well, they, 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 um, they basically attempted to um, isolate us as much as possible from all manners of American popular culture. Mm. So um, they tried to make, um, church, our foremost and most important foundational um, interaction with the world. And then out of the church community, a specific church Haitian community, then we could interact with the community. And our only, the only place that they wanted us to interact with American culture was through education. Mm -hmm. um, anything that they thought was educationally benefit, beneficial, they were fine with. But if they didn't see the value in it, educationally they they didn't want us to to have any part of it so that was music their perceptions of music their perceptions of art their perceptions of socializing um they saw it all and through a lens of evil and that that whether it was black or white uh when i was young my parents used to have the really strange thing they said they, they both worked at this factory they worked for a company called pitney bows pitney bows at the time made um, they made all kinds of things, but the primary thing they made was they made uh, official corporate postal scales and seals so that you could mass mail things out as a, as a corporation, just having your mail department have its own in-house postal seal. 
So they made those seals and they made this, this, the weights, the scales for those, for them to, to measure the, the male. And then I think they branched out in things like, uh, they started making copiers and other things, but that was a primary thing. And, and their primary factory was in our town. So my, I remember one of my earliest memories of my mother going to work was we lived a block from Pitney Bowes was her walking to work. And it, so there's our house, then my, my elementary school, and then like down the block was Pitney Bowes. So she would actually, I could see her walking to work from my kindergarten class. Mm. Uh, and I used to cry sometimes. I see her walking in the afternoon. I'd like break down crying. It's an interesting memory. So they worked with all kinds of working class people at Pitney Bowes, both, both black folks, um, who now I understand historically were folks, some some of them were born and raised in Connecticut. Some of them came from New York. Some of them actually came from the South where um, it turns out that my wife's aunt, husband, what like had landed in Stanford from South Carolina the year that I was born mm. and left shortly before I married my wife. Wow. Like this guy had lived around the corner from me for 30 years. And then the first time I meet him is in South Carolina. And he's like, oh, where are you from? I'm Stanford. He's like, oh, I was, I've been in Stanford for the last 30 years. Like, what? Very strange, small world. But so this migration of people, you know, Black folks there, uh, Polish immigrants, Irish immigrants, Ukrainian immigrants, Greek immigrants, Italian immigrants, a ton of people from Eastern Europe, like the farther, the Balkans, Eastern Europe. So all these immigrants are living in this town, working at the various factories in town. So my parents had interactions just working on factory lines with some of these people. And so a lot of their perceptions of American culture came from their work interactions with these working class people. So they used to say things like, we love black people, but it doesn't seem like black people value education, but they value God. And like, white people are interesting because they value education, but they don't value God. So you can't be friends with white people because they don't value God. You can be friends with black people because they value God, but they don't value education. So you got to watch out for that. Right. So it's like, so we're the only ones who value God and education. Like that's the, that's the way they divided the world. Um, and that's the way they perceived interaction. So they didn't want us to have white friends because they thought we'd become godless. They didn't want to have black friends because they thought we wouldn't value education. So that's the way they expected us to interact in the world. But I love how you've broken this down because we have had so many people on this show who are the children of, of immigrants. We have our own stories of, you know, being half West Indian as well, Demarcus and I. And, you know, it, it's become this thing we all laugh about, like this focus on education and being driven to be a disciplined individual. But I've never heard anyone break it down in the way that you have, meaning your parents' view of the states was really based on this insular community that was formed by literally the geographic community you were living in, but also where they worked and the opportunities that they that were available to them at the time, which I think is a very important nuance, which really hasn't been addressed on the show before. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of semi-obsessed with just trying to understand the world that my parents was seeing and then watching this town sort of transform into a completely different place than it was when I was growing up and then understanding what it was like even before I got there is also interesting to me um, because 
like you know having this insular space it be it became my entire world like my whole world was this town and my parents talking about how lucky they felt to live here versus living in New York. They felt like they had better opportunities for education for their kids. They were able to buy a house. They had land. I mean, there's all these things. And it was always a constant comparison to New York because we were, we went to New York almost every weekend. So I knew, I knew Brooklyn very, very well um, by the time I was 18 because I was constantly. So that's why New York was such a, I feel like, um, you know, uh, an honorary New Yorker, as do most people who live in either Northern New Jersey or, or Westchester County or Fairfield counties, because you're constantly interacting with the city. I had no relationship and I still have no relationship with the rest of what people consider New England. Like I don't, I don't, I don't have, I have no relationship with the rest of Connecticut. I don't relate to it in any way. My childhood memories, my sense of geographic relationship is always to New York and the what we call the tri-state area. So for them, it was this idyllic place. And, it, and I didn't realize that it was a bit of a shithole. Like I didn't, like it didn't, it didn't occur to me that it was a shithole that I left, that it was like, like, it's like now a better place, but it wasn't as great as I thought. Like, I thought it was great that we lived in this mini city. Like we got all the benefits of having a city, but we still were, you know, we're, you know, we're, you know, small. So I just thought that was great. And then it just, you kind of realize like, oh, that's actually not so great. Like it's, it's, it might've been better for us just to be a small town. Like we don't need all that sort of industrialization, you know? Um, so yeah, it's interesting. And then I think the other thing is um, my parents are sort of interesting in that they're, I think for culturally, at least from where they were culturally, they're remarkably um, introspective in their ability to say, are willing to say that like they saw things the wrong way and, and they may have did the wrong things as parents. Um, I think with my, my sister had been married for 10 or 15 years before she had her first child. And when she announced that she was pregnant, my, my father was telling my, my brother-in-law that he felt that he sort of made some really big mistakes as a parent because he didn't understand the country that he was coming into. Like he just didn't have a context. He didn't have a context for like racism. He thought the reason he was discriminated, he thought like race is a little bit of it, but he really thought as, he thought as long as he had education that the bounds of racism were loosened, right? He just didn't have a context. He, he thought had he had, a, uh, had an educational background that was accepted by this new country, that he would not have had the restrictions that he had. He thought those restrictions are based on his inability to speak English. Mm. Um, and it took him a long time to understand that that wasn't the case. Um, and so that's, so like, you know, like race was an excuse. And I think to a degree, you know, in our, in our micro family, like there's like two generations, my brother, my two older brothers, my eldest brother, six years older, my second oldest brother is four years older. They were both born in Haiti. My sister and I, my sister and I are three years apart. We are both born in the States. So that's sort of like within our micro family, that's our sort of generational divide. But it also, what's interesting is also is the divide of the effects of affirmative action. So it feels like my brother, my eldest brother for sure, and my second oldest brother, who maybe had the, the offshoot effects, they were the last generation as African-Americans who could solidly rely on affirmative action, that by the time I'm coming along, I do not have the ability to rely on affirmative action as a, any means of propelling 
anything forward for me in terms of education, in terms of work opportunities. So that's an, that was an interesting, so even my brother's interactions, like the way they perceive the world. And it's interesting that because my second eldest brother serves sort of as a transition so he could see both sides, but my brother's perception going forward and then my perception going forward, two different perceptions. So my interaction culturally could be seen as more Americanized. Um, and my, my eldest brother's was, he certainly is, and you would never, if he didn't tell you where he's from, you wouldn't know, maybe by his name, but besides that, you, you couldn't tell. But growing up, he certainly, at least in the household, kept up the traditions, uh, the, the Haitian cultural traditions and the ideas, right? And that it seemed that I was the more rebellious of the children, you know? Um, but it, I think it, it, it's interesting because I felt like it corresponded also with the larger culture I'm talking about within the town, understanding and relationship to the growing now darker skinned immigrant population. Because this town was inundated by, like I said, Eastern European immigrants. I have a childhood friend who's still a friend of mine now. Her mom was a first generation Irish immigrant. Mm. So she's sort of, she was like that. So, and I had cats whose parents were Greek, didn't speak a word of English. People from Albania didn't speak a word of English, Yugoslavia, the Ukraine. I mean, I had a ton of Polish people that I grew up with. Their parents spoke zero English, right? And they're in this town, right? But then then the Caribbean, then the population from Haiti, from darker skinned Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Colombians, Jamaicans, um, St. Croix, um, all these populations start coming and the larger town starts to change its attitude about immigration. So my brother was the last beneficiary. When my brother was in high school, teachers would perceive students from Jamaica, from Haiti as like great, quote unquote, black students who were serious. By the time I get to high school, that perception has changed. So now teachers see us all the same. Like we're just like the quote unquote black folks, right? So then that just even, that changed our relationship individually to the larger sort of idea of achievement. Like I had early on had seen myself as not a corporate person. I was never going to be part of a corporate structure. And I think part of that was sort of pushed out of my ideal based on my interactions with teachers and the larger culture that I was always going to be part of a rebellious culture. And that's where that was the interesting interaction with hip hop, because that's what hip hop represented, the, the hustle culture out of hip hop represented an opportunity to find something that didn't require us to put on a suit every day. And you know, what's interesting is that when you say re the rebellious one, I feel like I have a good idea of what that means within an immigrant family. It doesn't mean that you were necessarily off the rails no. or engaging in bad behavior. It just may mean that you're not a doctor or a lawyer, right? That's not the path that you want to go on. Yeah. So is, that, is it just that you were into something that wasn't corporate and didn't require conservative clothing. And didn't, didn't get so-called good grades. You know, it was just, I had a keen, I had a keen awareness early on that the world was deeply unfair and that all the things that they were telling us to do to make it fair, we're not going to make it fair. Mm. I think that my, my rebellion was out of that frustration, one, the inability to express that at a young age, 
Um, and then the inability for the people around me to accept that that was true, even though that it was. So just understand that the world was deeply unfair and that most of what we were doing wasn't going to make it any more fair. It was just if those of us who made it out really made it out by chance. I wouldn't even say the grace of God because God's grace falls on all of us. So it's like chance. Like some of you, you fall on the right side and you make it out and the rest of you don't. So um, so I think, you know, the, in retrospect, I had a deep sense of that probably by the time I was four or five. I just couldn't express it. I couldn't articulate it. And so it colored my behavior. It's like, why not sit still in school? School's not going to do it. Like, who cares? Like, so this doesn't matter. Like, I think I think I had an awareness, uh, an ethereal awareness of that, just the inability to articulate it. It's like, like this stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like, we don't have to do this. Like, just do the stuff that we want to do because this does not matter, right? Like, following these rules that they say is not going to get you anywhere necessarily. Like, you have to make your, you have to make your way. Um, and I think that was different. I think my brother thought there was a path. Um, and I think if he would talk to him today, he would believe that, right? He, he, I think he believes that it's probably one of our biggest philosophical differences is I don't believe there's a path necessarily. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try, but I think that you should allow, allow people who are trying, but who don't believe the path, allow their cynicism. Because you, you, like, we just have to look at the history of Black folks and be like, there's a lot of obstacles out there. Absolutely. You know, so we can't, you can't say this is the path. There is no path. Because if it was the path, the history of Black folks is we, I mean, this, this is the most interesting thing about education, like historical education and the lack of it in this country. What 99% of non-Black folks and even a lot of Black folks do not understand about this country that if it was a matter of will and discipline for Black folks to move themselves and, and shackle themselves from the shackles of slavery, they would have done it. Agreed. The, the problem is not that they didn't have, one, the ability or the will. They had both of those. The problem is, and what's interesting, what's fascinating, which is absolutely fascinating, it's probably the thing that gives... Tony, I think if you look at Tony Morrison's work in a weird way, it's very um, forward-looking. It's very hopeful. Is the fact that it, it, this fact gives you hope? It's the fact that the system has, con, con, on a continuous basis, has to renew itself to to suppress Black people in this country. That we are so we have such an ability to to break these chains that the system has to make a dedicated commitment to holding us down. And you can understand that by looking and not even saying a deep dive in history, just a dive in history. And you can see all these points where Black people are freeing themselves from the shackles of white supremacy. And white supremacy has to make a humongous effort to then drag us back down, right? So... That's, I think, what's fascinating, you know, and so that's why there are cynics among us who don't believe like in things like respectability politics, because we're just like the history of respectability politics is that it doesn't protect you. And if right. it if it affects your individual life, it doesn't have a generational effect. 
So it's good for your lifetime. Then it goes away. It can't protect the generation after you. So having this sobering view of the world, which I completely agree with, particularly the moving of the goalposts that has happened, uh, not even just on a, a generational basis, but it seems like it happens much more frequently than that. Um, but but you seem like you tapped into this view really, really early uh, and, and had astute perception about the way the world works. So looking at the world through that lens and also thinking about how your family operated, how did that inform your choices when it came time to think about post-high school education and career? Um, a lot of it may have been reactionary. I mean, it was it's a difficult to grow up in this very particular time, a very interesting time, but particular time for a young Black male and to not fall into some of the particular slots that were sort of the society was laying out for you. So I felt like there was a range of what you could be, but as they were very locked in slots. So you could be at the time, like I'm just, I'm speaking era wise, not the perceptions of today, but that era, you could be a Bryant Gumbel like person, right? Bryant Gumbel, African-American, educated, articulate, um, we didn't realize at the time he was very racially aware. It was hard to see that at the time, but but he was like he was the model African American for white folks. I I don't want to take somebody like Bill Cosby because he was an entertainer. Brian Gumble was not an entertainer. Brian Gumble was a professional. He was a journalist, right? You could be a Brian Gumble black person. You could be an O.J. Simpson black person an athlete, affable, um, all, we you know what they call all American, you know, the American dream, the success story, you break the shackles, right? Um, then you start to get a little, you know, darker. You could be, you know, like a, almost Eddie Murphy-like entertainer where you still break the shackles, but you're a little dirtier, you're a little this. And then, then it's like, now comes like, the rap thing. It's like this rap phenomenon that's like, and at the time it was a phenomenon, you know, that had been 10 years old, but it was still, and there were, there were people making money. There were the, 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 the singers and the entertainers making money. Those were like the slots that you got to pick. Mm-hmm. Um, well, invisible were all the black doctors, all the black lawyers, all the black corporate folks, all the black, academic professionals, um, all the Black scientific professionals, um, all the Black entrepreneurs. I'm realizing now, even in this conversation, all these people were invisible Mm. because they didn't fit into this cultural slot. And not to mention the women, you know, Black women as, as invisible, Black professional women as basically invisible that's that now that i think about it and now i think about the the celebration of black women um to think in those in that time that you were essentially invisible because the culture had no means of cataloging you you know i had a black you know we had my mom for the longest time had a black dentist like a very successful guy you know he wasn't celebrated right uh i still had this teacher i gotta reach out to her miss harase 
Ms. Harase was a, was a, she taught the higher level English courses, black woman. She wasn't celebrated in any way. Her genius, her education, everything, nothing about her was celebrated. She was, she was one in a, we, I think we had like 3000 students in my high school in, in Stanford. She was one of three black teachers, professional mm-hmm. black teachers. It was Ms. Harase. It was Jesse. Oh, what was his last name? Dr. Jesse. He was the, he was the, he ran the select choir. He had a doctorate in music. I can't remember his last name. And then there's like a gym teacher, Brenda Birch. They were the only three teachers. Everybody else was, they were on the security staff. They were on the cleaning staff. They were teachers aides. They were special education aides. But those were the only like three black teachers in a school that was half black. So thinking about that and the the invisibility of of other gradations on the spectrum of what you could be as a black person and particularly as a black man, you mentioned that your your path was a bit reactionary. So I mean, were you did you get out of high school and were you like, I, I don't really know what I want to do? Was that still a question mark? Yeah, I mean, I I early on I I I, I there was a part of me that really wanted to go into the sciences. I wanted to solve problems that I was contemplating. Um, I was early on, I became obsessed with space and astronomy. Um, so my brother, who's my second eldest brother, Jean-Luc is kind of brilliant. He'd say, you know what? You probably want to be, uh, what do you call me? Uh, I don't think he said an astrophysicist, but it was like something like aeronautical engineer. He's like, tell people you want to be an aeronautical aeronautical engineer because you want to you want to you want to fly planes you want to go to space that's an aeronautical engineer so that's what i'll tell people i want to be an aeronautical engineer and i liked math actually i liked the way i like math's ability to explain the world i liked math's ability to measure things that seemed immeasurable i never had teachers who who took the time to explain to to help me work through getting to the parts of the math that I liked. I I spent, you know, in my early elementary and, you know, middle school and high school education, for the most part, dealing with completely and utterly uninspired teachers, people who you could tell every day they loathe their jobs. They had no joy in their jobs. The, the best part of their day is when they left. The worst part of the day is when they arrived. Um, I distinctly remember feeling that. And I felt was interesting. I felt like I was one of the few people who could see that. I felt like everybody else, because the teachers I could tell who loathed teaching would let students kind of, you know, they play, pal around, play with the student, you know, have fun, blah, blah, blah. I felt like I was the only one who was like, this guy's not taking this. You're like, do you guys see this motherfucker doesn't care about us? Like, can you tell? Like, can you tell everything they do is just so they can get through the day, has nothing to do with making you happy or teaching you anything? And most so, people have that in retrospect. Like, when you become an adult yeah. and you talk about teachers with people you went to school with, like, do you remember that dude? Pretty sure he was drinking on his lunch break. But at the time when you're a kid, you most of us don't really connect those dots. Yeah, I had a, a, a teacher, Mr. Sheridan. I mean, Mr. Sheridan just, I, I've never met somebody that just, hated teaching so bad 
This is this is in middle school. He taught at Clooney in high school. His family probably sued me for saying this. Um, but I had another guy. Uh, oh, how am I going to forget his name? Because I loved him so much. Um, his name will come to me. He was our he was our science teacher, and he loved teaching, and he loved his students, and he made a big difference in my life because he he saw me getting bullied. And he would uh, he liked to weight lift, so he had a he had a bench in his in his in his classroom, and um, he would he's like, look, I'm gonna teach you how to bench. And he's like, once you get a little bigger, everybody leave you alone. He was right, and so every night he'd, we'd do homework and then we'd bench. Mm-hmm. To this day, I always bench. That's the, that's the the sport that I get into is weightlifting it's because we do homework and we bench. We do homework and then we bench. And he was the first person to say, he's like, look, he's like, you like space. He says someday. Space travel is going to change. Somebody like you, you don't have to be an astronaut to go into space. So by the time you're old enough, you'll be able to travel to space. So how do you go from an interest in the sciences and an acute awareness that you don't want to be in a suit and tie in a corporate environment to a cinematographer and filmmaker? How does that journey happen? Well, I'd always played music since I was six years old uh, because my dad was a minister. My dad made my two brothers take organ lessons since they were like nine and 10. And, and then he was like, you're gonna, I'm gonna pay for lessons for you guys and you guys teach your brother. So I had always played and I had a, I had an ear for music. I just had the ability, I had, had, I don't have perfect pitch, but I have a perfect ear. So I always know when people are in tune, not, not in tune and I could pretty much play. So nobody knew I couldn't read music. Like it took my brother a while to realize I couldn't read all these things you teach me. I, I was just memorizing the music. I didn't, you know, it took me forever to learn how to read music. And I still struggle with reading music. Um, I had a great year and there was a point in time I thought I was going to be, I wanted to be a jazz musician. Um, and I had, a, I had a teacher who, so a pretty good teacher, my music teacher. It was me and my best friend, Gene, Gene Augustine. Gene was a great musician. And Gene and I would play together. And, and we both want to go to the Manhattan School of Music. And my teacher kind of pulled me aside. He's like, I don't, he's like, he, he said, because he took us to the school, took us, we met everybody. But he said to me, he's like, I think you should go to school. I think you can do bigger things than just me. I think you can, you know. And now in retrospect, I realized that was his gentle way of saying, you don't have the chops. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the chops. He's right. I didn't have the chops because I also didn't have the discipline. I had raw talent. I did not have the best. Gene was disciplined. Gene practiced relentlessly. He read music. He understood music theory. I understood music theory. I understood music theory, but I didn't practice. Like I didn't really like, practice relentlessly. Um, and uh, so, so that's sort of the way the arts played a role. And that, that led me to constantly seeking out music, listening to everything, hip hop, jazz, um, I love new age music. Um, even I just knew music. I knew country. I knew rock. I knew classical. I just was, I'm a, I call myself a fan of music. Like I, I have a partner. I say, you like, you like a uh, artist. I like music. So I'm interested in the music world. You like specific artists. That's why when new things happen, you're like, who's this? Cause you're not interested in the world of music. You're interested in individual artists. So I think the the interest in music kind of, uh, and then uh, I'd always, you know, I, I was that generation, the first generation that was really kind of, or second generation is really 
babysat by like television, you know? So I was always heavily influenced by television. I did not, uh, uh, movies were not a big part of my life unless they came uh, through the secondary market on television. If they didn't, if movies weren't played on television, I, I did not have a world of movies growing up because my parents thought that movies were of the world. So they did not really show us. They weren't into showing us movies, um, but they never really, they rarely paid attention to what we watched on television because they didn't have cable. And so nothing bad was really, nothing terrible was happening on television as long as we stayed away from soap operas, which my mom turns out, my mom loves soap operas. She watched soap operas relentlessly, but she never let us watch soap operas. And she made it seem like they were terrible, but I found out later because she always worked at night and she was home by herself during the day. She totally watched her soap operas. So, um, so, so, so television and the moving image, that's how the moving image, like the first movie I ever saw, I think I was like 13 or 14 years old. I want to see Ghostbusters 2 in the movie theater. It's the first movie I ever saw in a movie theater. And I lied to my parents and told them I was going to the library and, and the theater was down the block from the library. So they dropped me off the library. I wait till they drive off and I walk down the block and I sit and I watch Ghostbusters 2 um, in a theater. Like the first time I ever did that. Uh, yeah, it might've been like 12, I think I was in middle school. So it was like a big deal. So um, I'd always like the ability for images to influence people, to make people. Like I remember when when Michael Jackson, that that uh, that uh, anniversary of Motown, did the moonwalk, all my classmates came back the next day and said, did you see the moonwalk? Did you see the moonwalk? So for me, the power of the image was the power of, of people, even us young kids, elementary school kids, to be influenced and to talk about. And it becomes these water cooler moments of what they saw and, and the way that united everybody, right? And so I think I always had that, imp- like I had that feeling um, and understanding. And um, yeah, I just, when I went to college, when I went to Morehouse, I knew that I I wanted, I kind of, by that time I wanted to go to make movies, but Morehouse didn't have, at the time they didn't have a pipeline for it. So I, you know, I went back to the things I knew, which was when I was in college, I was a, a major, I was a poli-sci major and a French major. I thought I wanted to be a writer as well. I thought I wanted to be like, maybe I'll be a novelist or something like that. I was always um, really good with words. Writing papers came very easy to me growing up. Reading, reading comprehension and inference was very easy to the point where I just didn't do the work. It was so easy to me. So I can never, I could, you, you can't look at anything academically and say, um, like you can see that trajectory because it was almost more like, it was like, again, it was like the rules, like, why are we doing this? Like there's so much more interesting ways of making these arguments. Um, so I never followed the rules. So I was never like considered the best writer because I wouldn't sit and write things the way people told me to write them. But I was, I was, I would consider myself probably way better writer than most people my age in those places that, that where I was, there was just no means of proving it. Um, so yeah, I, I think I, I was like, I want to be a filmmaker. I just didn't know how. I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know that you went to school for it. I didn't know any, I just didn't know how people got into the business. I had no idea. So I just went to school. I was like, well, well the, the next step is just go to school. And I wanted to go to a black school. So I went to Morehouse. Um, I, uh, the summer before I went to Morehouse, I remember um, Southern Playlist of Cadillac, Cadillac music came out and I saw that music video and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to go to school where they made this music. Like I'm the luckiest person in the world. Like that's the way I felt. I'm the luckiest person in the world. Like I'm going to go to this place and like just the images. That's how important like these music videos are. I'm going to go to this place. Like, do you see these images? This is new. Like Southern music, Southern rap music was 
new to me. It was new to people like me. Like it was interesting because I was into it, but like most, you know, most folks from New York weren't into it. They thought it was trash, but they were like missing out. Like it's amazing how they like missed out on this new perspective. And I felt I was like, oh, these cats are, oh, they're dumb. Like they don't get it. They don't, they don't get like, this is like, there's a, there's another world out there. It's not just Queensbridge. It's not just the Bronx. It's not just Brooklyn. It's like, these cats are in the woods somewhere and yet their stuff still bangs. Like, what is that? You know? So you go to, I go to Atlanta and it's another world. It's a completely, it's an urban world that is like, it's like, it was always like, almost magical. Like I describe whenever I talk about Atlanta from that era, I describe it as magical because I think it was magical. I think it was, I think it was one of the most magical times in black history was like Atlanta pre Olympics, Atlanta, I think is a magical, magical world. And it, and the sauce is there. Like, it's like all the things that came out of that era, everything before not just when I was there, but everything that came before. You talk about year, years of mofos going to Atlanta for school and it just mm-hmm. influenced it had on their life. It was a magical place because here was, and the reason is if you coming from where I was, like obviously if you're coming from like North Carolina, South Carolina, that's one thing. But if you're coming from like LA, Chicago, New York, the East Coast, um, certainly anywhere in the mid, deep Midwest, you come into a place where it's just nothing but black people and everything is functional. You know, it's not just function. It's like fun. Everything's functional. Like you go down. I was just, I, was, I literally just came back from Atlanta yesterday and I saw a black woman cop. And I said, I bet you Atlanta probably has more black female cops than probably anywhere in this country. Cause I've always, every time in Atlanta is always a bunch of black women cops always. Mm-hmm. That's the one place I go to where I'm guaranteed to run into a female cop. Like it's just, a woman cops guaranteed like but growing up i didn't see any black women cops growing up you know i don't think i've ever seen in all the times i was in new york i think i rarely saw a black woman cop in there yeah i know giuliani and years after they made a big push in the in for you know different police officers but Atlanta was like the first place was just commonplace you was constantly seeing black women cops so so, so back to your earlier point though about you know growing up and having very defined limited views of the categories that black people kind of fit into. Then you hit the AUC uh, and which is just all black everything. And not even just that, but there are people your age who are coming from well-to-do families. They're third generation college grads, et cetera. Like I I tell people all the time, like when I found out from my friends who went to HBCUs that like Whitley Gilberts were real, because I I only knew that on television. They're like, no, no, like I'm at Spelman. The Cosby's are real. Like these families exist. Um, and you know, when I was talking to to friends who were at HBCUs and their experience was very different than mine, where it's just like five of us, right. Or a handful of us at a PWI. Um, and it also, and I've seen this with many people, it opens up their vision to what's really possible in a way that they didn't have for. So did you have that experience of like a freedom to like, I can be something that breaks the mold of these one, two, three different categories. Well, even, even in a more interesting way, it, it changed the way I even saw Haitian people because really, yeah. Cause I met, you know, through the Haitian club at the AUC, I met the head of Citibank Haiti, who was like, I had never seen a Haitian woman that looked like her. Like just, I'd never, you know, Haiti's a very interesting, complex place. Right. 
So here's, let me give you the American equivalent of my Haitian experience. I feel like the Haitians I grew up with, the kind of Haitians my parents are, are the equivalent of like cats from like Selma or the Mississippi Delta, right? If you only met Black people from like the countryest part, you know, from like, from like West, like Black folks from like rural West Virginia, rural Alabama, rural Mississippi, rural Louisiana. But we know there are all kinds of Black folks. So like there are Black folks who are five generations New Englanders, you know, from Maine and, and Massachusetts. There are Black folks, when, you know, five, six generations New York middle class, right? There, there are Black folks who are multiracial, but identify as Black out of California, right? There's like, you know, there's, there's like, you know, Black folks who have interacted with Mexicans in Texas. There are Black folks who migrated from the Deep South to Texas, five generations. There's just, you know what I'm saying? There's just no, there's no flip. There's Chicago Black folks. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, that's the way it was in Haiti, right? There's different generations, but I had only interacted with a certain type because only a certain type was living where I was living for the most part. Atlanta was the first type I had really, first time I'd really met the, the Haitian bourgeois, the Haitian upper class. I'd never interacted and met with them at all. So meeting them blew my mind. Mm-hmm. I, I can just, I just never interacted with people like that. Like, it was like, what? Like, it was just like strange. So, so in all levels, like you said, like the five, you know, fifth generation, you know, wealth, like never mom, never worked, dad, always corporate America, every, you know, like don't know, don't know what it's like to have a family member who is, doesn't have multiple degrees. Like it's shocked. They're shocked meeting people like me. Right. Like, I'm a phenomenon. Like what? There are black folks that exist like you. Like they don't know. They don't know that there are black folks who don't live like them. Like they're so deep into their, sh- like when they see things on television, they think people are making that up. Right. Like, like they're friends with you because they're literally they're looking at you like you a dinosaur, like you you like they can't believe you exist. So yeah, like it 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 and it the great thing about HBCUs is they they really do genuinely get rid of any kind of myths about white supremacy, any myth you had about black people. If you just walk on a black college campus, it just it has to go out the window. Absolutely, like it's just because it you just meet so many different types of black people. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like they're they're not even mono. They don't even begin to be monolithic. You know, especially a big place like the AUC, which technically wasn't actually that big. I mean, at the time we had like 3,500 students at Morehouse, barely 2,000 students at Spelman. I think we were. It was hard to crack 5,000 at Clark, another 3,000 at Morris Brown, and then the International uh, Theological Center was like you know maybe 1,500. So you're talking about the AUC as a whole was. It was hard to crack 10,000, 11,000. You would just go to Georgia Tech and, you know, you might be in 15, 20. You know what I'm saying? You go to Georgia State, you're at least at 15. You know, you go to Emory, you're at least at 15, 20. So we were relatively, we were actually small, really. You know, it was a small microcosm. And yet, yeah, we were so diverse. I mean, you know, just so many different cats from the Caribbean, like just a huge Trinidadian contingency, um, cats from the Bahamas. Um, you know, not to speak the, the, the Africans, the Nigerians, the Ghanaians, like, and what's interesting is like now, like, you know, I've taught at Howard's campus. It's like 
it's just a kind of a given, like the number of like Nigerian, Nigerian American, Ghanaian, Liberian. Like you just, you just, you know, like a quarter of the campus is gonna be West African. It really wasn't a given back then. Like it, they, African students were uh, almost a phenomena to a degree. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, a word, y'all, y'all know, y'all, you know what I'm saying? It was like, it was, which is dumb, like when you think about it, but it really was our re- reaction. So, um, yeah, yeah, no, it was, you know, yeah, I met students who were born and raised in Nigeria, you know, parents are lawyers and they sent them to America, like they had their own apartments. Oh yeah, like I, I knew a, a sister, I don't want to say a name, but she, like her two brothers had an apartment off campus and she decided to live on campus. Like she was, you know, go home to Nigeria for Christmas. Like just, just different world. I don't like, I don't even, I relate. Like I'm just, you know, which, which is, I know is annoying to meet me because in some ways I so just did not understand the world, you know. But, but was, you know, I think sometimes being in those environments when you don't come from that and you see these financially prosperous, like well-to-do Black folks can sometimes affect, I think, your professional choices because it's like, oh, I want that. Like, I want to be the generation that turns the tide and I want to create this for the people that come behind me. And I've seen that happen too. Like people come to school and they get this view of what's possible in terms of Black wealth and they change their vision for what they want their career to be just to get that as well. But it sounds like you've remained true to who you are through all of this. Yeah, I mean, part of it was like a weird where I just knew in some ways I just couldn't do it. I mean, the great thing I, I, I to this day I still don't even appreciate about the AEC was just if you really wanted to be corporate, the AEC was a place to go because the same recruiting that happened at Harvard, Princeton, Brown was was happening at AEC. Mm-hmm. I completely took it for granted. I completely took it for granted. I just thought this is what happens at college. It's not what happens at most colleges. I can't tell you. That's not, you do not get that heavily recruited the way you do. And so I, I was like, oh, I have to make a resume. We have to put clothes on. I don't want to do that. Like I never, I mean, you know, I, you, you go to the AEC. I had, you know, I had friends that were getting paid internships as freshmen, sophomores. I had a friend, she had a car. They, they gave her a thousand, like $1,500 a week, which is, that's like, at that time, she might as well have been rich. Exactly. And I gave her a corporate car with the gas car. Like, she was our friend, friend, you know, like, because she was balling. We were like, you are balling off an of internship, off a of marketing internship, like to us. But I took that for granted. I just thought, like, okay, this is what happens. You know, did it. I didn't realize, like, yo, they don't go down like that. Like, they don't recruit like that. Especially black kids, they're not recruiting, you know. And this sister- is like, way before a great recession where money was really flowing from yeah yeah money was definitely yeah yeah like they just threw it around like it was they really did they really did (laughs) it around and my sister went to university of michigan it wasn't like that like them them kids were like they were struggling when when pegged against the white kids like the corporations just if you're black they're ignoring you you know what i'm saying so it was like and it so there was a whole contingency when, when my sister went to University of Michigan. I was in Michigan at the time. And so there was a, there was a whole contingency of cats who had graduated from the AUC who were then going to graduate school to the AUC. I mean, in university in, in Ann Arbor. And we were kind of looking like, damn, like, we, we looked at them like, you know, like Hebrew slaves, like, let my people go. Like, man, you guys got to get free. Like, it's not, you know what I'm saying? Because it just, we like, damn. And that's what it hit. Like, oh, it was different. Like, we had it different. Like, 
it's hard out here in these streets. Like you didn't realize, damn, it's like that. Like your college experience could be like that. Oh, that's messed up. You know what I'm saying? Like we had no clue. So yeah, the AUC in particular at that time, and even now, like when I see students who go to HBCUs, I know how magical it is for them. I think the biggest difference is now it's part of the larger culture. For At that time, it wasn't you know, like, like a different world was going off the air. Um, it's harder to see. There were some representations of Black people on, on, on screen, but not as much as there is today. Um, but it still was a magical place. It's a place where you, you caught it, you're like, okay, I, I can, I think I can do whatever I want. Like you kind of, it made you believe that you could find that way. And then just the, the culture of Atlanta at the time, like it was in terms of hip hop, um, you know, Atlanta is where hip hop artists went to be feel regular. Mm-hmm. Like they could walk around, they weren't going to be assaulted by, because the hip, my perception of this, the hip hop culture in Atlanta was only cared, only made stars out of people who were from Atlanta. So you could be Biggie Smalls and they're like, they didn't give, they didn't give a darn and you were Biggie. Like, so what? So you could walk around, you could be Red Man walking around, you could be Method Man walking around. That's why Tupac was walking around. That's what, what happened to Tupac. He was walking around and got into trouble and then he had to leave Atlanta because you could be normal in Atlanta. You know, that's why Too Short moved to Atlanta. It's like, mm-hmm. it was, he as he had no affiliations. He had, so he could just walk around. He could go to any club. He can go to any ghetto club he want. When nobody who had no, because Atlanta had this culture of don't start none, won't be none. So Atlanta was the place where I could go anywhere. I couldn't do that in New York, right? You couldn't go to certain blocks. I couldn't go to Red Hook. I'm walking on the, I've walked on the block in New York and like, you could tell like these cats are about to chase me in two minutes. And and the one thing I loved about the way I grew up, grew up in a running culture, my, all my siblings ran track. And so like, I could run like three miles, bro. So I was like, oh, y'all could chase, but good luck. Catch- you're going to, you're going to get tired before I do. Good luck catching a brother. Cause I could do this for about four miles, this pace. So can you do, oh yeah, you were like, you two steps behind me for now. By the time we get to the end of block, you now 10 steps behind me. You keep on chasing, but who who you catching up to? You catching up to me? Is that me y'all? None of y'all milers? Oh, okay. Sorry. You know what I'm saying? But that was the kind of thing. Like I always, when I was in New York, I had to always have to be ready to like, I gotta be ready to keep this uh, six minute mile pace going for about a mile and a half because these cats talk about who you on the block. You know what I'm saying? Like, dude, I'm passing through. I'm trying to get over there. Like I'm not nobody. I'm just trying to get over there. You trying yeah, to see girl on this block? No, I'm not. I'm not trying to see nobody. I don't know you. You don't know me. And I'm not a danger. I'm just passing through. Atlanta wasn't like that. Atlanta, you go anywhere. And all you had to do is be courteous. Right. I used to, I used to chill in Bankhead. All the, all the, here's the strange. The, all the time I spent in Atlanta, and I was in some crazy spaces. All these beefs that were happening, like when you, when you talk retrospective, I didn't know none of that stuff was happening because I was having such a good time because I never interacted with anybody on a negative basis. Mm-hmm. And I knew I got into situations where something was about to pop off and I would just say, oh, I'm sorry. And it would just end. I remember it's I said, like this, yeah, it's like this weird respect that they have in the South, even in that weird respect. And thing. I stepped on, never forget this story. I stepped on this dude, crowded, crowded club. I stepped on this dude's shoe, big dude, step on his shoes, white shoe. I'm like, oh, my bad. He's like, oh, my bad, nigga. And his friend goes, nah, man. He said, he said, he's sorry, man. You got to let it go. And that was it. And he just walked away. He had to walk. His man told me he had to walk away because I said, I'm sorry. He's like, nah, he ain't trying to start nothing, man. Come on. Let that go. Boom. 
That was the closest I ever got. And besides random gunfire, which did happen a lot. Random gunfire really did. Like the only place I've ever been to drive by was in Atlanta. It was Virginia Highway. Because everybody carries. Every, like, well, that everybody was carries in Georgia. Yes. Yeah, that's the thing. So the, the strange is, is one of those cultural things. So we had cats from New York, cats from L.A., cats from Chicago. It's strange. I mean, I don't know why you go to school and then you think you're going to run up in the drug game. But people had had that. So like my freshman year, eight or nine Morehouse students were killed and they were all killed in drug interactions. Like like mm. it was like three cats found in a field shot execution style. They were from New York. Um, so like there was a lot of these rumors of like students like deciding like, oh, I'm a, like, this is an easy town. Cause it looked like if you come in from a certain environment, it looked like an easy town to blow. We could, we could take these cats as soft. We could take it. Da, 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 da. Like you said, you could carry a pistol in, in Georgia and nobody cared. Like they, you get more, insur- more in trouble for not having insurance in your car than you did for having a pistol. Mm-hmm. The, the cop knew when he approached your car that you had a pistol in the car. That's not exactly. what he was afraid of. He was more, you was going to get more, cats were more scared of like, I ain't got insurance. Now I got a pistol in the car. Let me just say, I know DeMarcus, who went to school in Georgia and lived in Georgia for a bit, really wants to jump into this conversation right now, even though he's producing. And, and much of what I know about this culture is definitely from him. Yeah. So, so for me, like running up in Bankhead, going to like booty shake clubs, and I, I and the other thing I did is I always rolled when I did things like that, I always went rolled solo because I knew I knew when you roll with you when you roll in a clip with more than five dudes, trouble is gonna happen. So when I would go to certain spaces, I would just go by myself. Mm. And and I never had those kinds of problems. Number one, I, I don't think I ever carried myself in that way. But then Georgia has a way, like it's weird. Cast in Georgia, I feel like when you don't have ill intentions. Like everybody loves you, especially if you're not from Atlanta. So the fact that I was Caribbean got me into a lot of places. I had a, especially at the time, a great Jamaican patois. So I could get anywhere. I would just go all kinds of places. I did all. Well, you know. Wait, pause. Let, let, let me I find out that you were, you were was, pretending was, to be Jamaican. No, it wasn't you, it was just patois. Like everybody, if you learn, you could just speak it. It's just, I was Caribbean. So it was just like, I just moved from all the patois. Like there was a, there was a, there was like a year and a half where the Trinis on campus swore I was Trini and that I was acting like I wasn't Trini. And there was a guy, um, what's his name, Woods? Oh, I can't remember Woods' last name because it was first name. We always call him Woods. He knew I was Haitian. He was like, no, he would tell us like, no, he's not. And then my, one of my roommates was Trini. He would have to tell him, he's like, no, Hans is not Trini. Like, he's not Trini. He's Haitian. Like, he just, he can just speak the patois, but he's not Trini. Like, stop treating because they would treat me bad it's like because they thought i was a trini faking that i wasn't trini <laughs> it was this weird thing it was like the in my and, and so i asked i was like why do trini's always acting like he's like oh because they think you're trini and you don't want to be trini i was like i'm freaking haitian like why do they think i'm trini i was like because like you always speak in the patois like whenever you're not around trinis you always speak in the patois and you get around us and you don't speak the patois i was like well you know it kind of feels strange to kind of you know and he's like, yeah, people think you're Trini. And I know you're not Trini. I know you're Haitian because I've seen you at the Haitian club. Like, I know you're Haitian. I know your background. But people think you're Trini. Some people think you're Trini. Some people think you're Jamaican. Like, you know. So, yeah, back then I was like heavy, heavy into dance hall. And we had amazing dance hall clubs in Atlanta. Like, we had amazing, like, rivaling the clubs in New York. We had just amazing clubs. And because the town's a little bit smaller, you get to know everybody in the community. So I was deep 
deep into dance hall, like deep. I went to all the sound clashes and I didn't realize this until the time that like the way the, the sort of the, the concert circuit and the club circuit is really out of the Caribbean up through Florida. They hit Atlanta and then they hit New York and go, you know what I'm saying? So we got music before it got to New York. We got to see like all the sound systems before they go perform in New York. You know, in some ways they performed in bigger venues in Atlanta. Sometimes they would in the city. So I got, and then I had friends, you know, my friend Caudel was deep into dance hall culture. My friend, my, my roommate, Mamet, my Trini roommates, Shaka. So like that was like, I abandoned hip hop and went straight into the Caribbean. And I was lost until I left Atlanta. Like I was like, this is it. It really was my world. So um, yeah, yeah. I, I totally indulged. The only thing I didn't do heavy that I, which is odd because now, like when I go to Atlanta, that's what more of what I do, but I, I hated going to the strip clubs because mm-hmm. I hated giving up my money. Like I didn't have money like that. And I was like, this is a fucking waste. Of, I mean, this is a waste of money. And I, 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 I hate, I hated my friends had to drag me to strip clubs and I hated being every moment I was in a strip club. I loathed it. So not wasting money. That is very, very Caribbean. Yeah. I was uh, like, you. Yeah. But now that I got money, I love going to strip club. And and I don't get lap dances. I pay for other people. That's my favorite thing. So I go like the next time I go, because last time I went with my I went with my wife and my, my friends, he was getting married. So we, I treated him and his wife and my wife. I, I think I brought like two, three G's like this time. Next time I go and bring like 10 stacks in the bag, banded and giving away as gift. Like I'm like for me. If you're going to do it, you got to do it right. Like it's one of the, so I, I spent a time as a cinematographer, I spent a time in Magic City studying sort of stripper culture as like, as it relates to stripper culture in Atlanta specifically being the vanguard of black culture larger mm-hmm. across the country. So he interviewed all these strippers and it was just interesting to spend, like literally going to the club and sit and watch as we did that for like three, four weeks. And we interviewed like a series of, of exotic dancers. And it was just enlightening because the I was doing this with Arthur Jaffa. We both were not stripper club people. Like that's not, I was not a stripper club person. So I never went into strip clubs like, I want to give dance. I, I never did that. So I got to go in and just observe and to get a sense of what it meant. So we I, you know, went to Onyx, went to obviously Magic City, went to some of the smaller ones on the outskirts of town, which are always very interesting ones, I think. The ones that the, the locals like to go to. Um, and I find it fascinating. I really do. I find stripper club culture fascinating as an adult. Like I just couldn't appreciate it. I think I had a sense of like exploitation when I was younger and that I couldn't, that was not based on like... Um, a true sense of equality or anything like that. I think I was being more paternalistic. So that's that was more my discomfort. And I think once I was able to get rid of that, I could sort of really understand and really enjoy the space as it was meant to be enjoyed. And, and you know what's interesting, and, and you probably know because you've done the research and you've, you've done creative works related to this, but it's its own ecosystem. And you have professionals in a lot of industries who don't necessarily publicly talk about the money that they've gotten from strip club culture. People know from music, if you watch hip hop documentaries or you listen to artists talk about breaking their music in the strip club, but I know stylists, people who do makeup hair, people who do PR, who are business managers, all these things who will say, like, I don't talk about it publicly, but I have this whole other side hustle of what I do, or it's one of my main lines of income working in uh, the exotic dancing business. Well, one of the things that we learned was like, 
Um, first of all, like Magic City is run by a woman. It's like uh, I forgot his the guy who owns it. But his daughters run it now, like on a regular basis. Like they're the main people who run it. But I remember one of the the dancers. I won't say her name because I'm still friends with her to this day. But I should have when I was at Atlanta. I should, when I go back, I've got to tell her I'm coming so we could have lunch because every time I come down, we have lunch. I remember she said she was just like. So I asked her. I was like, okay, talk to us about the nudity. Right. Because like there's one of the differences. Like a strip, I, I would guess Miami strip clubs, but Atlanta strip clubs was interesting is like the nudity is like you walk in the club and people are already naked. Right. And I was like, what is like how what's your what's your relationship to the nudity? And she was like, she said something so fascinating and interesting. She said the nudity is a uniform. So when we're naked in the club, that's our uniform. She says so often when I'm outside the club people don't even know who I, like I literally, somebody just spent three, $4,000 on me all up in my face. And then I meet them at a grocery store and they have no idea that that was me. Unless it's a specific tattoo that somebody sees, or I'm wearing the same hair from the night before. If I wear a piece and I take that off, you don't even, you can't recognize, you can't, you know, without the eyelashes, without the nudity as a uniform. So she said, like, I don't see that you see it as nudity. I see it as a uniform and I take that off when I leave the club, mm. you know? So it, it just spoke to, like you said, the, 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 the little nuanced world that is, I mean, I was fascinated by the fact, I mean, when I was, at, when I was at college, I didn't go to like, you know, I didn't go to the magic cities and I, I went to the gold club back when the gold club was big and the gold club was really big. Cause like the, the athletes, that's where they went. But it wasn't the same as Magic City. I'm mean, seeing just the money on the floor. The fact that nobody like tries to steal it is fascinating. Like nobody, like you know what I'm saying. Like I've seen twenty thousand in a two dance cycle hit the floor, and not a single person who's not a dancer touch a single piece of paper. Not even like a slide down. Like it's as if it's part of the space. That's I'm sorry. That's fascinating because it count it. It's counter narrative to so many things that we think about human nature. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a respect for the space. I think, I think a man would feel absolute shame if he was caught trying to touch that. Man. You know what I'm saying? Like it would be shameful. And Castle point you out, like, are you touching? Are you serious? Are you touching that money right now? Like, like even some of the dancers, if you weren't part of that dance cycle, you're not supposed to touch that money. Right. Like I've seen, I saw money sit on the floor until a set of dances were done like half an hour, 40 minutes later. And then they come and sweep it up. Like for a whole series of dancers walk past that money, never touched it. Cause everybody knows, no, no, that money is from when we was doing that series of dances. And like, like, it's like people have the calculations in their head and you're not supposed to touch that. And someone's like, they ask me if you touch that money, you know what I'm saying? So that in of itself is fascinating. Like, it's just fascinating. And I, when I worked in Atlanta as a, I worked on a, several TV shows. I lived in a building. There was like a two or three uh, dancers in the building. I remember, because we basically kept same hours. I kept my TV hours of the, essentially the same hours as the club hours. And I was always coming home, was a particular dance, I was always coming home when her and her, when her boyfriend was escorting her home. And she was always in sweats, you know? And I always knew, was, I knew, I knew what she did because she was leaving for work around the same. When I had overnights, we were leaving for work at the same time. She's in sweats. I was like, oh, she's a dancer. She had a bag. She had a two bags. And I was like, oh, she's a dancer. And she would come home at night with, with her. Sometimes her boyfriend would escort home. A couple of times I'd just like, hey, do you want me to walk you through the, the wall? Yeah, yeah. Can you walk me through the, the, the parking deck? And I'd just, she'd go to her building. I'd go to my, you know, whatever. Um, 
So it's just, yeah, it's a fascinating culture. I think it's a fast. It's one of the things I I like about Atlanta. It's like it's kept this culture. It finds a way to innovate it. I almost hate the fact there are TV shows about it because I I loved it as our dirty little secret. You know, um, I like the fact that it was so, it, for so long it's been an underground part of Atlanta, um, and I hate that it's being. That's one of the things that I don't like about Atlanta. Like all these great little things about Atlanta are now being publicized, and the city's losing its edge. It's the same way New York City lost its edge. Um, in the same way where cities where Black people create a cultural phenomenon, create an amazing space, start to lose their edge. Um, I say that about Paris, like Paris is a dead city. I don't know why people even visit Paris. There's nothing to do there if you're a person of color. Um, you really need to go to Marseille. You need to go to the suburbs. It's strange. Like we sometimes, it's the places that are a little bit more dangerous are the places that have that cultural vibe. And it's such a shame that the two go hand in hand um, because you want to, like it's, it's like people like us who are not, you know, I've always identified as a person who makes images that do a, that I do a lot of work around hip hop. Uh, whenever I talk to hip hop artists, I always tell them that you not only made, obviously you made music for the streets, you clearly understood that you could sustain your career by making music for the larger pop culture, like the the white folks, the the foreigners. But I was like, I feel like a lot of y'all forgot that you were making music for black folks who weren't in the streets. Mm. for Black folks who had different either backgrounds than you or aspirations. And you really, you were making music for your your children who don't, you, you, you took your kids out the hood. You're not letting your kids hustle. Like you made music for me to get me through the thing that I had. To, I remember I said that to, I had a long conversation with Raekwon about that. And I was telling him, like, you made music that I will put your music on. It was like armor to get me through like the few times I was the only Black kid doing something. Like I listened to your music to get through that. I listened to your music, so I didn't wild out. I wilded out in your song, so I didn't have to wild out in real life. I was like, honestly, I listen to your music to get through your hood sometimes. Like, your hood, your, your cats looking down. You know, we're honest. Like, y'all looking down at people like me as I, I'm sliding through your hood. Your music kept me from saying, like, you know what? I'm going to get this pistol and handle it. Like, I'm not going to let these dudes do this to me. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. your music kept me from, I could do that in my head. And I never had, doing things in, in, in your music allowed me never had to do certain things in real life. I was like, that's the power of your music. Because I could live in a world that allowed me to pass through and not feel like, like you talk about wrestling with pride and dignity and stuff in your music, allow me to play that in a virtual space and never have to take that into the real world. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.